Hello and welcome to episode 9 of The Pantry Party featuring Liza Barber. We're your hosts, I'm Liza and this is Bran and yeah, today we're talking to Liza who, yes. yeah, we don't say our names too much so it's not too confusing. <laughs> but yes. um, do you want to explain how we know Liza? Yeah, so I was very lucky to be uh, lectured by Liza. Um, it's a lot of alliteration going on yeah. today. <laughs> it's fun. Um, in my final year I think it was my first semester though so my second last semester of my undergrad um she taught me all about the food systems with another wonderful lecturer called Julia McCartan um and we basically learned everything uh about food systems and also how the government can play into that and all the different contributing factors I also got to learn some public health from her as well um which fed nicely into my masters, and I just always was very—I don't know what the word is—but I was always enraptured by what she had to say, and that's why I thought she'd be great to be on the podcast because she just seems really open to talk to, which she is, as you hear yeah. in this podcast, and very knowledgeable, but also very curious and wants to learn more about things, which is something that. It's a quality that I've always admired at anyone. Um, so having a lecturer like that was really impactful on me, I think. It really shaped how I wanted to be in my career. Um, not so much the, I don't know if I'll get involved in food systems and stuff, but more of that learning Just the aspect. approach to it, yeah. yeah. She's got a very kind of level-headed approach to nutrition. Like, mm. she's not super, like, ugh, not, I don't want to say polarising, but she's not, like, really, mm. you know, or... strongly opinionated about certain things yeah um, but she's very passionate about what she does which I think is it really comes through in the um discussion that we just had we just we just listened to the timestamp and like yeah. went through it all now so <laughs> it's like very it's fresh. a really nice chat it is she's got a very good perspective on a lot of different topics and I was just gonna say that is I think she's one of those people who's kind of done it all in a very short amount of time not mm. not everything to do with everything but she's kind of dipped her toes in every like a lot of various aspects of nutrition careers and then managed to stumble upon something that's really worked for her and really clicked with her. Um, and I think we learn a lot about how work fits into your life when you're pa that passionate about your work. Um, yeah. And also like the, I guess, willingness to just like pick up and go and do what you want to do. Like if yes. you're offered an opportunity, taking it and yeah. making the most of what you're given and I guess just going with the flow of everything that comes up for you. Yeah, we talk about a whole bunch of things, so we really go into detail about her career so far, really, um, which I'm really grateful we did because she's done so much things. So it encompasses clinical dietetics, uh, relocating rurally and to another country, working in public health, working in food insecurity, working as a lecturer and starting a business. Um, I think they're the main things that kind of... Doing a PhD, motherhood. And being a mother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> totally forgot about the two big ones as well. Um, and I think I the one thing that sticks out to me about this conversation is how calm she is about all of it. Yeah, she's really <laughs> chill. I'm stressed listening to it. <laughs> and I think she is so... Not that... Like, she's not one of those people who looks like she has it all together, but she just deals with whatever comes, yeah. and I think that's a really admirable skill. Yeah. 
yeah, it was a really good chat. I really enjoyed this one. I think, like, I didn't really have much interaction with Liza because she was on maternity leave when I was sort of, like, in that yeah, part of my course. Yeah, we were course. almost tag-teaming, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was really nice to hear her story and hear about, yeah, all of the different experiences that she's had and where yeah. her career's kind of taken her because I think, yeah, she's got a very nice approach to her career path. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's nice to listen to. I agree. So without further ado, here is our pantry party featuring Liza Barber. Alright, well, should we should we get going? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so question number one of the Fast Five is your top three pantry staples. Ooh, top three pantry staples. Is this for me or for the kids? Because I feel like the kids, Ooh. it's going to be a bit random. Do both. Can you do both? Both. Okay. Separately. So yeah. my <laughs> top three would be my... Measly, almond and apricot. Yeah. Love it. Um, oh, pantry. Um, a good whole grain bread. Mm-hmm. It's another staple. And, oh, pantry. More of a fridge girl. Fridge is fine. Fridge is fine. Brian said milk in hers. Milk, <laughs> absolutely, hands down. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah nice. Nice. And for the kids? <laughs> for the kids. They love a cheese stick. I have, I always have a little stash of marshmallows in the cupboard Aww. just for that rainy day when you need to give them a little treat because being a dietitian, obviously, you have to kind of ration them out, ration out <laughs> the treats a little bit. Um, and then teddy bear biscuits. Nice. Yeah. yeah. The chocolate covered ones. No, no, no they love. I've never treated them with that. <laughs> they don't know any difference. I've happy. Re- rediscovered the like dark chocolate covered oh, teddy bear yeah. biscuits. Yum. Yeah. What's your favourite dish to bring to a party? Favourite dish to bring to a party would be a layered Mexican kind of dip that I do and take some beautiful, um, really good quality corn chips and then they get to eat like this delicious kind of guacamole bean salsa and my husband being from America and I I know that's a massive generalization but he can make beautiful Mexican sauces and salsas and he uses all really um interesting ingredients um so yeah we we kind of do that together good one I feel like if we were to have a pantry party party all the dishes that people have been saying in that question it'd be so good yeah um we had some really good Claire on and she, Claire Palermo, yeah. and she said, the sticky date pudding. I think so, yeah. We ha- we've had a good oh, mix lemon of, like, tart. She makes an then... amazing lemon tart, Claire. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I have to follow her up on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, question number three is your most memorable event or party that you've thrown. At my wedding, for sure. Yeah. We, had, we got married in Tonga. Oh, oh, that would have been amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. And um, we kind of didn't expect that many people to RSVP yes because it's in <laughs> And then we ended up with 100 people at our wedding. And oh. about two months before our wedding, the domestic airline in Tonga went under. And so we had to charter planes <laughs> to get all our nearest and dearest up to the Northern Island group in Tonga for our wedding. Um, it was a little stressful leading up to the event, um, but once we were there, it was just, yeah, amazing. Amazing. Oh, that would have been so yeah. cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. Such a different... Stressful, but cool. <laughs> yeah, it was all worth it. It was really fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. What is your favourite strategy for self-care? 
Massage. Ooh, <laughs> I have no to book myself, so once a fortnight, um, I try and take myself off and just have a massage. I don't know what it is, but I just get this real clarity in my head and it kind of helps me organise all the chaos that's going on in my head and I just, um, yeah, real sense of calm and yeah. um, I just need it. If I don't book it in, then I'll never have that time to myself, so just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And final question is, what are you currently into? So any like books or podcasts or anything? Um, I'm like really into my CrossFit at the moment. <laughs> so I only started a few months ago and I can understand why it's a bit of a cult kind of thing. Yeah. Because once you're committed to it, you just, yeah, it's just great. I love it. Just feeling stronger and getting to know this amazing community of people down here in Mount Eliza and... Yeah, it's really fun seeing what your body can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool, like, ex- way of experimenting and, like, the endorphins, I imagine, would be, like, yeah. a really yeah. good hit. So, yeah, yeah nice. absolutely. Yeah, you don't think you can do these things. Yeah. And then you've got a really supportive group of people around you and you coach and they kind of tell you that you can and you give it a go. And, yeah, it's amazing. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Very nice. Well, before we jump into... The main conversation. Do you mind introducing yourself, what you currently do, um, anything else? Yeah, that's yeah. basically. Yeah. Tell us who you are. Yeah. Who are you? <laughs> oh, well, um, in a nutshell, I am Liza Barber and um, I'm a dietitian. I currently teach at Monash University and I kind of teach the public health nutrition um, unit and also a unit called Sustainable Food Systems. Um, So those are two units for third year um, Bachelor of Nutrition Science students. Um, And then I'm doing my PhD (laughs) on the side, full time, um, which I've only just started. So I'm only six months into that. Um, But my PhD is looking at what role local governments can play in helping us to eat a more environmentally sustainable diet. That's so cool. Yeah, Yeah. so I'm learning heaps. um, And it's just really fun to be able to focus on one topic. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I graduated 15 years ago and I've just been a real generalist in lots of different things over that 15 years and so it's kind of cool to sink my teeth into something and really understand all the research and evidence out there for this so yeah and then on the side of that I also have two little kitties so (laughs) Elliot is four Heidi is two so they keep me busy and my husband and I have started a pickle business um, so that's, yeah, I know, so I feel like I need a few extra days in the week just <laughs> to keep all these things running, but yeah, it's, it's very fun chaos. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, do you mind, so you mentioned that you graduated 15 years ago, do you mind telling us about, I guess, your journey when you started out, where you thought you were going to go, um, obviously you've told us where you have ended up, but sort of what shaped that career path I guess yeah absolutely I never thought I'd end up teaching (laughs) back at Monash because I was a student I was in the first cohort to do um the dietetics at Monash University um so I um yeah graduated it took me about six months to get my first job um I think I had applied for seven or eight jobs before I got my first one Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so that was 15 years ago, and I know that's nothing compared to how difficult it is now, but just to give some context. So it was never super easy, yeah. um, but it certainly got a lot harder now. My first job took me to Western Australia, 11 hours north of Perth, um, <laughs> where the nearest town was like a four or five hour drive away. Um, so that was not what I expected <laughs> to um, end up doing as a new graduate, um, but it was the best career move that I could have ever made and I've got a lot to be thankful for now looking back for that experience. What was that you? in like a community <laughs> position or? Yeah, so I was employed as a community dietitian, mm-hmm. um, employed by WA Country Health Service. Um, so I was based in Carnarvon, um, sat at the hospital in Carnarvon, which is on the beautiful Ningaloo Reef. Um, so I don't know if you know Western Australia, but it's stunning up there. And um, being the only dietitian for this ginormous region of Western Australia meant that I got to travel um, in a little so six-seater aeroplane. <laughs> we used to go a couple of times a month um, down to Monkey Maya um, and Denham. Um, and up to Onslow and Exmouth, so they're all coastal towns. Um, but then I also, and it's um, probably one of the um, most privileged I've felt in my career was to be able to go to this tiny little Aboriginal community. It was 600 kilometres inland from Carnarvon. Um, and yeah, it's called Boorangara, about 100 people live there, but a very transient population. And I just learned so much from my time in that community as well. So, it's so cool. Yeah. 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 I've been up that way because, like, as I said, I'm from Perth. Yeah, I've been of up, course. like, we used to do road trips up there. And it's, like, it's such a beautiful part of the world. But I don't think, like, moving to Victoria, people are so unaware of the size of WA. Like, it's, yeah. And even up that way, like, the towns are so far apart. It's so And that's big. a huge spread from like Exmouth all the way down. Absolutely. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we were in the little plane. Yeah. The little plane. We had a few touch and go moments. Um, oh. I sent a couple of texts <laughs> to mum and dad from the plane saying, I love you. Oh my God. <laughs> Hope this plane lands. Yeah, we had a few um, scares like that. But yeah, really just an amazing yeah. group of people that I was up there working with the Allied Health team and got to know them really well with our near-death experiences <laughs> um but yeah also um I was just talking about it in class the other day that I didn't expect as a dietitian that I'd have to learn how to drive a four-wheel drive but WA Country Health Service paid for us all to do a five-day four-wheel drive course so we were doing like drag races down the dry riverbed oh in Carnarvon like it was so much fun and <laughs> learn all the mechanics and because when you're driving to these really remote communities the roads aren't made yeah and lots of cars roll over and that sort of thing so you have to know what to do yeah, if you get bogged or Amazing. i know so ask dietitians yeah we're not princesses are we? <laughs> no no really oh that's so cool so how long were you in that position for that was three years yeah <laughs> did you and expect to say stay that long well or? i so yeah this was another thing i think it took me a while to get that first job so I was just excited to get any job it was only a two and a half month contract um and so I often tell my mentees um don't be shy don't shy away from those short-term contracts because after my two and a half months in that 
kind of locum job. The CEO of the hospital called me into his office and I was really nervous and I was sitting there. I was only like 22 um, and he basically put a piece of paper in front of me offering me a permanent full-time job um, and the pay raise was like 20 grand more because I'd jumped up to a grade two dietitian because I wanted to like make the offer really appealing to me and I would have said oh, yes so for free yeah. probably. <laughs> like, at that point I was loving the job so much and so yeah I just signed that contract and um, I honestly could have stayed there forever like I really enjoyed it the work the diversity the people really challenging but in a really good way um but yeah I just had the I've always had itchy feet for traveling so I I left to go overseas and do some travel, so... Yeah. Yeah. So was that travel for the next job? Was that for another job or was that for... That was not even a for a job. I, it's <laughs> outrageous now when I think about it. But I guess I wasn't married, no kids, nothing. So, yeah, just got on a plane, went to Canada and spent a year, worked in the snow, worked as a um, nanny in a summer camp. I just needed a, a year away, Um and then met up with a few of my really close friends from Carnarvon that I'd met there. Um, and we bought a minibus in Mexico and spent um, uh, nearly a year travelling through Central America That's and down to so Colombia. Cool. And yeah. um, with no real timeline, we just were surfing a couple of times a day. And it was great. And I did my um, graduate certificate so in international health. <laughs> While I was studying, so yep. it was really cool to be in like places like Guatemala and learning about maternal and child health nutrition and just walking around and really soaking in the culture and seeing the hardship but also the joy that food yeah. was bringing to these um, beautiful people. So oh, That's amazing. What was the next, did you get like any clarity out of that career-wise and then what was your next sort of step? journey yeah sure so I remember um I spoke to mum and dad on Skype at an internet cafe because this was <laughs> way before we had phone special phone I didn't even have a phone on me um and I was telling them that I was going um paragliding over Medellin in Colombia and I was not even excited it was just what I was doing that day and mum <laughs> and dad were laughing at me and they sort of said do you think it's time that you came home <laughs> I said, yes, I actually do. I'm ready to come home and have a bit of a dose of reality. And so I applied for a few jobs um, initially when I got home. So I applied to go to the Kingdom of Tonga um, with the AusAid kind of Youth Ambassador for Development Program. Um, so I put in my application for that, but it was a really long lead in time before you hear if you're successful or not, like I think it was about a six month process. So I submitted my application for that and really desperately wanted it. Um, and then I wasn't ready to settle back down on the Mornington Peninsula in um, Victoria. I still wanted to go somewhere else. So I got a short locum position at Alice Springs Hospital. Um, so I worked as a renal dietitian and on the surgical ward yeah. for about three months. And then found out that I got the job in Tonga while I was in Alice. And so off I went from the middle of the desert to a remote island. Yeah. <laughs> I was very wow. happy to see the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. No, you have, if you have questions, jump no. in. Um, so with your work in... 
hung up. I still remember. I still remember learning about that at uni, though, when you did like your first week of subject. And you're like, this is what I did. I guess what was the most rewarding thing, and I guess one of the biggest biggest highlights yeah. from working overseas and working in a community that and, um, we have nothing like that here. Like, yeah, <laughs> sure. It's um, that's a good question. I guess the biggest highlight for me was that I met my husband in Tonga. (laughs) And so I wouldn't have my two beautiful kids if I hadn't gone to Tonga. Uh, So James was there um, with the US Peace Corps. So he's from from America. Um, And so that kind of speaks to the fact that when you're um, overseas in a country like Tonga and you kind of um, get to know the other volunteers really well so we had a really great group of fellow volunteers when I was there went on lots of sailing trips and lots of camping on these really remote amazing islands and beaches and um, so yeah just um, I was only in Tonga for 12 months but it was a really special time um, for work I was working at the Ministry of Health so in Nukualofa, which is the capital city of Tonga. Sorry, that's a little Heidi. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I worked in the health promotion unit and worked with the most beautiful Tongan women predominantly. There was a couple of men, but um, my counterpart was a Tongan um, woman about my age. And so just learning from them about their culture practicing my Tongan, learnt a lot of Tongan swear words, of course, <laughs> um, and then, but they just really wanted to practice English, so I didn't get to speak too much Tongan, um, but yeah, just learning about how nutrition fits into the culture in Tonga, and really very different to the way we view nutrition, and um, health in Australia, and body image, and all of that, so I learned a lot about Tonga. That's really cool. I think a good opportunity because we were just saying before that we've got some really lovely feedback that people would love to hear more about cultural competency. Yeah. Did you find that your degree had prepared you for that? Um, Not so much. And I think because I've worked with um, Aboriginal communities and um, Aboriginal people in lots of different roles that I've had, um, I've also learned that cultural competency takes so many different forms. Um, and when I was in Tonga, I was all full of beans ready to start work and get my hands dirty and, you know, plan all these great like public health nutrition mm. interventions with my colleagues and mm. um, they just would laugh at me and say, Liza, just relax. Like, so they had these sayings. So Friday was Christmas Day. You don't do any work on a Friday. They call it Christmas Day. <laughs> and then Monday is the brother of Sunday. And in Tonga, on a Sunday, you can't really do a lot. You can actually get um, a fine from the police if you're doing any oh, wow. kind of exercise. Or It's a really sacred day yeah. for um, church and family in Tonga. So just things like that. that were, It was just a different work ethic, really different culture to what yeah. we used to hear. But I learned so much, and I really appreciate and value um, those qualities um, in a workplace as well. Like yeah. it wasn't about the efficiency and the outputs. It was about the quality of time that you spend together in the work. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Do you have any um, hot tips for people who are working in, uh, I guess, more diverse or different community to their own in 
having that compassion, having that understanding for another culture? Absolutely. I think my number one tip is just to ask loads of questions. Don't feel that you have to know anything about what you're doing. Um, I think there's an expectation, and especially when you're earlier in your career, you feel like you need to present as knowing a lot about a lot of things, but Mm. allowing yourself to be vulnerable and just ask loads and loads of questions, it's the only way you can learn. So. Yeah. Um, do you mind tapping into that body image stuff that you talked about in terms of what jumped out at Tonga? What was that like and how is that different to, I guess, the more Western Australian values when it comes to that? Yeah, sure. I guess um, in Tonga, beauty is a very different form of beauty for, um, I guess, a woman's physique in Tonga. And um, I think it's uh, when I was there, it was the Tongan princess. Um, was considered like the most beautiful person ever and she was really tall um, quite a um, like probably a more solid build Um, and so that was really valued in Tonga which I really loved like it just so refreshing but then I guess on the other side of that working at the health promotion unit was really interesting like that was a really interesting thing for me to get my head around because there was I might get the stats wrong, but I think diabetes was about 50% of the population mm. um, were diagnosed with diabetes. But then, as you know, so many people are undiagnosed. So the rates of diabetes and obesity and heart disease were super high. Mm. And there's no renal dialysis machines in yeah. Tonga, or there wasn't when I was there. So people's um, quality of life and length of life is quite short yep. over there compared to ours. And I think I remember you mentioning that I might have been you about because it's a an island and a lot of those larger companies kind of pass through it essentially. Was that a large factor as to why there was a lot of ill health, like like the diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Um, and how did you, I guess, combat that in your role? Yeah, my knowledge, but yes, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I think. Um, it's quite sad that Western cultures kind of idolised in Tonga. Well, in my experience, it seemed to be. I'm hoping and I've heard that it's starting to change, which is really nice. But there wasn't as much value placed on traditional practices Mm. and traditional foods, um, which was sad. There was one of my colleagues, her little boy went to school with this beautiful fish. for It was a special day at school to bring a dish of food to share with your friends. Um, And she'd got, you know, fished, got this fish, prepared it in a beautiful, like, underground oven, really traditional way. Um, And he was in tears taking it to school because all all his friends were bringing um, imported foods like chips and biscuits and cheese and really Western foods. And so it's a bit of that... um, I don't know if it was more that he didn't want his friends to think that they didn't have enough money to buy those mm. imported foods. or, But, yeah, it was really sad to hear yeah. that story. And um, But, yeah, I've heard that it's changing now, which is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting how that, you know, like you say, that kind of money side plays into on societal status and it's not it's no longer just about the food. It's about what the food represents, which yeah, is really interesting. Yeah, that's it. 
So we, I worked with the um, health promotion unit staff and we developed a national nutrition model because um, there wasn't really a consistent message about what foods are considered healthy and what a balanced diet can look like in Tonga. Um, so we put a wave at the bottom of the page that was all the imported foods and it had all the typically available foods yep. that are there in Tonga. But in the conch shell, it was like the upside-down pyramid. Um, and we had all the traditional um, Tongan foods in the kind of eight most, eight moderately, eight least sections of the pyramid. So um, just to really highlight the, the beautiful, fresh foods that are available in Tonga are the healthiest. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. How did you find, I guess, reflecting back on that, that that plays into that sustainability and more... I guess food, like public, the public health side of things, that's that is food access. Do, did you think that had an impact on your interest in that area, or? Yeah, it's a really good question. In Tonga, families are allocated a residential plot of land, but also a plot of land to grow food. So that's every so family cool. has both. Um, so that was really interesting because that's so different to here. Um. And, yeah, I guess it's the ultimate case of having your own locally produced and, and really understanding how to produce food. Um, that's like a fundamental knowledge that's passed down through generations in Tonga. We don't really yeah. have that in Australia. That's it's, super interesting. Unless like, you're interested yeah. in it. Like, we've obviously, you can see our veggie garden and um, it's between seasons now. We've just planted it out last weekend ready for spring but that's just like James and I love it and Elliot and Heidi come out and they get to see it they're really involved in doing it all always takes a lot longer (laughs) um it's worth it so I guess unless you have that interest you're not really going to learn um those skills in Australia I guess so how I guess where did you go after that? After, after Tonga, Tonga. You came home with your American love. <laughs> yes, um, was surprised that James <laughs> came back here with me, which was delightful. And I got a job in South Melbourne, St Kilda and Paran yeah. as a community dietitian. Um, so that was another great um, job to have. I was there for three years. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing um, outpatient um, clinics um, and I set up um, a bunch of different outreach um, programs um, to really support people experiencing food insecurity. Mm-hmm. So we had monthly clinics at the um, one of the major emergency food relief centres. Um, you probably know it on the corner of Chapel Street and Carlisle Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd go there once a month and set up a clinic on Gray Street in St Kilda. Um, so just understanding that people often don't want to come to see a dietitian, um, even though they get referred to, there's lots of reasons why people might not want to come mm. to the clinic to see me, but I thought I'll just put myself in these positions, um, where they can kind of put a face, um, to the yeah. name of a dietitian and just be really informal and casual and have those kind of more personable interactions and, yeah, it was really great. Ended up just meeting the most amazing people from all walks of life. Yeah. Yeah. And then was that when you came to Monash? Was that the next um, step? Yeah. So I just got back from Tonga and I remember Claire called me up and she's like, 
And today we had just received some fabulous funding for some amazing project, as Claire does. She's <laughs> always been incredible. Um, and so she called me and asked if I could do some backfill teaching for her while she was doing one of her new projects. Um, and I was terrified at first. I was like, yeah, Claire, I can't talk to that many people at once. What am I going to say? I don't know what to say. And I'll get all nervous and be very awkward. And Claire was the one that's like, no, 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 you'll be great. I'll help you. And um, so, yeah, I kind of thought, well, I just need to be brave and give it a go. And so I started teaching at Monash and um, that was in 2009. 2010 so I've been doing it for yeah nearly 10 years. years now um and I just was teaching um I think it was every Friday um on the side of my job at um in community health in South Melbourne St Kilda and Paran um and then I got a job at Second Bite yeah so I um I went and worked at Second Bite for three years but again did the teaching at Monash on the side of that job yeah yeah cool yeah can see you're obviously very passionate about the food security side yeah. of things. Yeah. I don't think we've really discussed much about no. that and how we as dietitians can have an impact in that space and what it all means. Um, as I guess we've found most of our listeners would have some knowledge about what food like, security is, but can you tell us a little bit about your experience with it and how important it is, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's people that can speak um, to this with much more credibility <laughs> than I can. I always feel like that, but there are people that have been working in the, or dietitians that have been working in the food security space um, for a long time and are very well published. Um, I'm just going to give Heidi to my daddy. <laughs> there you go, love. Do you want to take your popcorn? Good girl. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah, they could probably speak to it a lot better than I can. But in my experience, having done lots of outpatient clinics, and it's a real honour to be in a room one-on-one -on -one with someone and ask them all these questions. You know, you do your diet history, but mm -hmm. it really unravels this whole story of everything else that's going on in their world and so um and I'd always I don't know if it was from being in Carnarvon I don't know what it was but I just always um well, I tried never to make the assumption that people had this plentiful supply of food mm -hmm. in their cupboard all the time because most people experience some form of hardship at some point in their life and so I just really carefully curate my questions during that diet history to try and understand where people were at. Because um, as you know, food security, it's a spectrum of experience. So um, just trying to work out where people were at and because um, it impacts everything. Like, you know, if they're, if they're accessing food at emergency food relief services for the, most of their meals, then that really affects the advice that we give. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to understand why they're experiencing food insecurity. So we're really lucky. We've got a lot of theoretical knowledge in Australia about why mm -hmm. or the determinants of food insecurity now. So 
just really asking the right questions to understand that, whether it's a food literacy thing, if it's an income thing, um, or the other reasons. Yeah. And I think that's something that I really took away from our course, in, like just in comparison to what I've discussed with other people in that, like one of the strengths of my personal education has been that that's really been instilled for me the whole way through up my education mm. and so regardless of what I'm doing with that degree now I feel like that's always at the forefront of my mind and I think that's something that's really 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 important to instill in our practitioners because like what's the point of giving someone health advice if they can't follow it right and then they can't access well, the means yeah. to do so they don't have the environment that allows them to make those changes yeah yeah especially food related uh, and just seeing the look of relief mm. on people's face when you ask them a question about um, their food budget and working out the way that feels comfortable for you to ask that question. Um, but once I got my wording right and felt confident asking, it's kind of when you have to get over the asking people about their poo. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like it takes you a few goes to get the wording right for yeah. that. But it's the same asking about a budget because mm. people are a bit, um, it's a very sensitive, very personal issue. Um, but once you get the wording right and it's just, yeah, the relief on people's faces to be able to talk about it and that just opens up this whole other area of our education mm. um, and our skill set that we can support people with that budgeting practice as well. Yeah. Um, do you mind chatting about your role at Second Bite? Yeah, of course. how that's kind of mirrored, I guess, your work in that Monash teaching as well and I guess where your passion for that has come from? Yeah, sure. So, um, and it's probably a good point to, um, a good time to bring up that the job that I took in, sec sorry, in Tonga was advertised as a social marketing officer. So I applied yeah. for that because it was within the health promotion unit at the Ministry of Health in Tonga. So there was no mention of nutrition, dietitian, public health, nothing in there. Yeah. Um, and similarly, at Second Bite, the role was advertised as a research and development coordinator. So no mention of nutrition or dietetics at all, but I knew that Second Bite had a real um, value for providing healthy food to people experiencing hardship. So I knew that my values would align with theirs and that there was that real need for some um or opportunity for nutrition expertise within that organisation. Mm. So yeah, I took that job and um, it was great. It was probably one of the most challenging, hardest jobs I've ever had just because the scope was huge and the opportunities were massive. Um, so I developed a couple of nutrition education programs um, and we started them in Victoria, but then I was able to secure funding in Sydney. So we employed a dietitian in Sydney um, and similarly down in Tasmania. So I kind of did a lot of travel in that job um, to those three states, but also up to um, Alice Springs, I think that was. Yeah, but so it was covering the whole of Australia and um, delivering training for both the staff and volunteers that give out emergency food relief, but also the individuals who are receiving emergency food relief um, and ultimately trying to support them to develop mm -hmm. um, their food independence so that they don't need to rely on emergency food relief forever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think that's such an interesting, like, 
concept and company. Like I did a bit of volunteering for them just in their like factory and driving for them. Yeah, amazing. And just the amount of work that goes into making something that's quite a simple like concept work Mm. is incredible. Yeah. Like there's so much to take into consideration, even when you're looking at like what an individual um, place that you're providing the food to needs from you. Yeah. Like it's all like storage. Yeah, or, it's incredible. Yeah, all that other stuff that comes with yeah food. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the food is just one part of it. Mm. So, yeah, the whole system. Um, yeah, so second bite food bank, fair share, um, Oz Harvest—they're all doing really amazing work. There's mm. a huge need for what they do, um, and I guess our role now is just to keep pushing to government that it's not the solution to food insecurity Mm. and that we need some sort of governmental policies and pretty radical things need to change before we can lift you know there's two million people who are still depending on emergency food relief Mm. um and that's not okay that's not we're not upholding Mm. that human right to adequate food um when Mm. people are having to line up in soup kitchens and whatnot um, it's not a very dignified experience for a lot of people. So, yeah, that's where, because um, I'm part of the Australian um, Right to Food Coalition, mm-hmm. so we do a lot of advocacy work um, to hopefully try and shift that in government. Yeah. Something that's just coming to my mind is, yeah. have you noticed a difference in attitudes come the, like, superfood wellness that kind of other end of the spectrum how has that affected people's relationship with food on the flip side those people do who do have to access food relief what is that what has your experience been with that ah that's a a tricky question um because in my head i'm kind of imagining that like and from the conversations i've had with people it's like you are you're either or it's very black and white when it comes to food it's like you either have to do all the things right or nothing at all. Okay, yeah. Um, I was wondering how that could have impacted that kind of Yeah, I've industry. spoken to, um, I've, I've got some vivid conversations in my memory bank of clients that I've seen mm. in clinics and um, in those kind of outreach services um, where there's parents who have just massive guilt about the fact that they can't provide what yeah. they know to be the healthiest foods to their children because they just don't have the financial means to do that so that's a really heavy burden of guilt on a lot of um parents i think yeah Yeah. and i think like with um the whole wellness superfood sort of side of things in order to be able to make those decisions about purchasing those types of food that's a really privileged position to be in yeah and unfortunately most of our workforce is are in that level of financial mm. security where they can do that. So it's really difficult, just purely based on a lack of experience, for that to be then translated into something that's actually going to help people that don't have that. Like Absolutely. Yeah, and so I think it's about making those feeds accessible and affordable to everyone. Um, we need to increase and advocate for an increase in the welfare um allowance that's given to people because yeah it's just it's impossible to eat what we recommend as a healthy diet on the Centrelink allowance it's just not possible yeah just rising cost of living as well yeah yeah you can't expect oh Oh, Heidi (laughs) (laughs) yeah can't expect people to 
oh, yeah, yeah. have a healthy diet when those sort of things. Anyway. Does that play into your PhD or is your PhD more the other side of food supply? Um, it's interesting because I think the, I mean, I don't know yet the yeah. answer to this, but there's a bit of a perception that buying organic food is the healthier and more sustainable option, but organic food's also a lot more um, expensive in most cases. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping that my PhD will um, help me understand that um, mm. a lot more. But also, um, I think we need to be able to make these sustainable foods affordable and accessible for everyone because otherwise, you know, we're just this one little piece of a ginormous puzzle of the food system and it all has to work together. Mm. So Yeah, because yeah. otherwise you're still reliant on the foods that aren't sustainable. Exactly. So... Yeah, so um, some very wise people that are very well published in the area of food system <laughs> um, work, they are saying that it's nothing short of a great food transformation that is required. It's not little changes that we need to make. It's got to be quite radical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be a really exciting space over the next decade. I think we'll see a lot of really great work happening yeah. to improve our food system in yeah. Australia but also globally yeah are yeah. you looking specifically at Australia I'm doing a um a scoping review right now so looking at the literature all over the world mm-hmm. um but then I'm doing case study research with local government areas in Australia so I'll get to kind of um understand them in a lot more detail mm-hmm. so so yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be great. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Fascinated by food systems. I did like one of the big I probably won't put this in, but one of the big things that influenced my approach to nutrition was my public health placement, which I did with Claire and Sue. Oh cool. Um, looking at farmers markets. Yeah, amazing. Claire's trying to get it published for us, bless her. Yeah, yeah, that's great. (laughs) It's really important work. Yeah, and so, like, we were so motivated to look at this and look at food access because we were just looking at cost and, like, physical availability of food at different locations. But it's so much bigger than that. Like, it's the whole, like, yeah. And, like, we were talking to farmers and talking to people that were growing the food and there was this whole issue of, you know, people in the communities not being able to access the food that was grown there because they're going to the cities to sell the food mm. and it's, oh, it's ludicrous. yeah it's ridiculous and I think it's just so important to know more about it but we found that it was really difficult to get it published because we only had a re- obviously really small yeah sample so it was kind of like but then we were saying there's also nothing published so it's kind of yeah. like yeah we may as well get these little ones out <laughs> well yeah you have to share the, the story it's really important yeah. mm. when i lived in carnarvon the um one of the major um industries there is bananas growing bananas the bananas used to travel 11 hours on a truck yeah. down to perth and then they'd come back up to carnarvon to woolworths yeah. to be sold it's just insane yeah and it's, surely it's more expensive for the company oh, doing absolutely. That anyway, like. Yeah, so um, when I worked in Carnarvon, I was part of the Farmers Market Executive Committee, and so um, I got to understand the kind of ethos of farmers mm-hmm. markets in that role. Yeah. Um, and so we got some um, government funding to really establish a farm gate um, trail, yeah. and so all lots of the farms in Carnarvon do have 
at Farmgate already, but we got these really great banners and had a trail map printed up so that tourists to the area could go around and access just this amazingly fresh, beautiful, healthy, um, really tasty produce from the local area, which is because it's a real selling yeah, point for Carnarvon, so nice. you know, it's, mm. it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's nice that you've been able to actually have that impact. Because, like, for that community, that would be a huge step. Yeah. Because like, I think that's what we found from our research was that everyone wants to see this change. Everyone wants to see this improvement, but mm. there's no means to get there. Yeah. And, like, you know, the farmers are so concerned with the actual process of growing the food sure. that they can't be the one who distributes it. And, you know, like, they, there's so much more, mm. I guess, complication in the way that our food industry works, which when you yeah. think about it, it just doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, and the skill set that's required yeah. of um, like primary producers mm. Mm. is just huge. Yeah. To be able to grow your crop, to be able to market your crop, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's massive. Yeah, let's talk about pickles. 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 <laughs> We're in a bit of a pickle right now. We've <laughs> so basically James and I started making American style dill pickles um nearly twelve months ago now. We sold our first jar at Manalaza Farmers Market in November last year, so yep. twenty eighteen. Um and so that was really only um just over six months ago. Um, and now we're producing five ton of pickles a week. I cannot it's just exploded <laughs> before our eyes. Um, James had to quit his full time job in May. Was because um, I remember he came in to one of my lectures. Yeah, in he did. And yeah. was talking about because he was a link between like Insaclunas, was it? Yeah, and he was like a produce yeah, selector so kind of job. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so James was selling fruit and veg um, wholesale. He worked for um, Spade and Barrow, so we helped set up Spade and Barrow, then Cicleaners and Boysdale Best. Um, and then most recently he worked in business development management at Coles um, with oh, the wow. Coles online team. So he's got a really um, interesting mix of skills around the food system as mm. well and um, we kind of didn't realise, but starting a pickle business has kind of pulled together our interests um, yeah. really nicely and given us a whole new perspective on the food system and um, just the realities of how hard it is to be part of the system as a producer, mm. um, I guess. So really exciting, but it's been very testing. <laughs> Lots of ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. what sort of grew the idea from, like you said, it exploded? Was there just like an interest at the farmer's market for you guys to become a business? Because I jumped onto the website and was like, you guys have got, like, you're selling it all across the state. Yeah. And maybe somewhere else as well? Is that yeah. Right? So um, essentially what happened is we were just doing farmer's markets and we had a couple of retail stockers, like mm. one up in Sydney and um, most of them locally in Victoria, but we were just like managing all this on our weekends kind of thing because I work full-time, James was full-time, um, and we were going to the kitchen, like mm. we were renting a commercial kitchen to make the pickles one weekend a month, 
And we were making 450 jars of pickles every time we went in and we thought that was a lot. And, so, <laughs> and that was, I think, 150 kilograms of cucumbers. And now we're ordering two and a half tons of cucumbers a week. That's so incredible. it gives you a sense of the um, growth in the last yeah. couple of months. Um, but it all, it's been a huge amount of hard work, but a lot of good fortune as well. So through one of Elliot's kindy um, friends, their, their dad introduced us to a, um, the manager of one of Australia's um, premium cheese distribution companies. And so they've taken us on as their pickle supplier. So yeah, it's really <laughs> exciting. So they've got a sales team in every state and territory that are out selling delicious pickles now. And <laughs> so that's why we're just pumping out the pickles. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, that, yeah, it's just, that was totally obviously out of left field. Like, you yeah, just didn't plan totally. To it's kind of what we'd hoped, but we kind of thought it, oh, gosh, it wouldn't yeah. happen for a while, you know? Yeah. 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 How does that work? Obviously, you're super busy work life balance wise for you. Yeah, it's not going so well, <laughs> the whole work life balance. I think my CrossFit's helping me get a bit of um, kind of space, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I really love, I'm very fortunate. I do love every aspect Mm. of what I'm doing and, um, the kids are my priority all the time. Like I always carve out time to spend quality time with both of them and make sure that they're not feeling disrupted by all the other chaos. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We just sort of keep going. (laughs) I haven't been on holiday for a while. (laughs) Looking forward to a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. And you were mentioning to us before we started recording that you've recently, I guess not outsourced, but like started employing more people and mm. having to do the whole actual business side of yes. things. How have you found that as a nutrient, like as a dietitian? Yeah, well, I mean, you never really learn these skills mm. in HR. Like I've um, <laughs> had to learn all this, um, you know, writing a letter of engagement and having an employee handbook. And um, I think I've, James and I have been listening to food startup podcasts religiously for the last 12 months and we've learned so much from that and one of the kind of consistent messages was to acknowledge your strengths and your weaknesses and so obviously HR, not something I've ever done, so we've got this amazing HR consultancy that we're working with, similarly the whole accounting thing, never done a payroll in my life so... We've got these amazing accountants that we're working with and um, using a really um, intuitive software system that I've learned and I think I've finally got my head around that now, <laughs> so that's um, helping things. But yeah, just like outsourcing the bits that we need to and doing what we can in-house. And just in terms of, I guess, the practical and logistics of it, it's obviously it's quite an investment at first, isn't it? Like getting all yeah, that software huge. and stuff. What was that like? Like taking that risk and taking that step? Cause we've talked to people in private practice and things like that. It's obviously quite a mirrored yeah. kind of thing that you've got to invest a lot before you get a lot out of it. Yeah. What has that been like? <laughs> really stressful. Yeah. Super stressful. Um, cause yeah, you just kind of hemorrhage money into this thing that you hope is going to do what you think that it can. Mm. James and I have got a lot of faith that it is going to all work out. And so that's kind of keeping us going. Has um, it helped kind of being in the industry in, in some form? 
before going into that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that, so James being American, he understands how big the pickle industry is in the States and with Australia emulating some of the American culture and pickles are kind of starting to become a bit more prominent in the Australian food scene. So we're, we're confident that that's going to um, kind of play into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we um, know what the pickle um, suppliers are like now in Australia and we think that we're filling a niche that they're not. So we don't add any sugar to them. They're really low in sodium. We use apple cider vinegar in the brine so it gives it just a natural mm-hmm. sweetness and without needing any of that added sugar. So telling that story, like I feel really good about it as a mm. dietitian to have the kids eating essentially just cucumbers. Like yeah. they just <laughs> love them. So it fills me with so much happiness when I see kids at the markets um, just eating our pickles and <laughs> loving them. So, yeah. And even just from like fermenting your brine and things like that how is that process like the whole it, obviously you have to think about all of that stuff and then doing it on a large scale yeah and all the processing and everything after that sure. do you mind talking us through that process yeah it was very expensive it's probably <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind like lots of trial and error we had lots of mistakes so we lost a few batches of pickles early on um, just because we've got really high standards about the quality of our product and we use really good like premium ingredients in the first place. So if you're not happy with the batch, that all's just kind of gone. So really <laughs> yeah. expensive. Um, and that was also heart-wrenching for me um, with my knowledge of food waste as well. Yeah. So I was really conscious um, of that but yeah it's all part of the process my dad's very wise and when we were getting really upset that we're just wasting all this money learning he kind of reassured us that most people do a full degree or do really expensive courses or training before they take on a new trade or a new industry and we didn't have to do any of that so we did have this kind of couple of months there where we were just learning and felt really expensive but it was learning our trade and mm-hmm. getting our recipes sorted understanding how specific we had to be about the ratio of different our spice blend and just everything's really specific now and we're really happy with the products um so it was all worth it I think yeah, yeah. that really super steep learning curve <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah not even a year yeah really, really quick <laughs> I guess just the the whole like you're essentially doing like four different jobs like, right now yeah yeah it's I mean and we talked quite a lot in previous episodes in ours about realistically balancing that and managing that but like I'd love to hear your experience on that because it's yeah it's re- I have to be super disciplined so my kind of nine to five job is my PhD. I spend one day a week on my teaching at Monash, but the other four days is like my sacred PhD time. Um, and so I don't open my computer to do any delicious stuff until the kids are in bed. I often pour myself a glass of wine or a cup <laughs> of tea and I sit up at the kitchen bench and I'm processing invoices, going through our gazillion emails that we got that day and kind of actioning all that. Um, but I have to be really disciplined not to open the pickle inbox at all during the day because you can that could just really disrupt my whole PhD trajectory and that's um, 
I get, yeah, it's, I don't want to say it's my number one focus right now because they're sort of all number one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just the discipline, I think, is really important. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Do you find it difficult to switch between the mindset for each of those things? Like- yeah, it's a good question. And I, I was thinking about this the other day. If I think back to every job I've had, um, none of them have just been the one role. You know, like mm-hmm. even in a community dietetics job, you're doing clinics, you're doing outreach, you're creating public health programs, you're writing evaluations, you're mm-hmm. doing presentations at schools, you're doing so many different things in all these jobs. So mm-hmm. I think I, I don't know any different than having a really diverse workload. So I think that's probably helped. Yeah. I think that's pretty normal, though, for a nutrition career. Totally. Yeah, I was just going to say that sounds like everybody (laughs) we've talked to, really, bar like maybe one or two, have just been doing a whole lot of multifaceted things, which is great, which I think reflects how well-equipped, in a way, we are to do so much and make such a contribution to whatever industry we're in. Yeah. Um, And, And like, well, we talk a lot with other people about the typical dietetics position of going into clinical, like in a, into a hospital job. Um, and I feel like that's probably the only time when that wouldn't be that sort of like multifaceted yeah. workload because you are, it, it is quite a simple, streamlined, straightforward position. Yeah. But like even in that job, obviously there would be different things you're working on. But mm. I think in reality, the majority of nutrition graduates would have to be going and doing that many things Mm. even within one role absolutely and even um I mean it's been a while since I've worked in clinical but you're still contributing to all these big research projects and collecting data for this and that you're also um you know working with food service and modifying those processes Mm -hmm. and doing quality improvement activities and um yeah there's it's and how lucky are we to have the diversity I just, yeah, I feel very grateful to have done the degree that I did. Yeah. I just think we're super lucky. And even just talking to people who have graduated with who have gone into so many different areas, like whether that be food industry or startups or private practice or research, it's it's really comforting to know, maybe not at first, but after <laughs> a year to hear that and be like, everyone has actually ended up with something. Yeah, It's not what they may have thought they were going to get when they came into the degree um but they've been able to channel some aspect of the degree and go with it absolutely and working out what your like interests and passions are and then kind of playing through those strengths like Mm. I love I've always been fairly creative um and love kind of design and um and written visual communication stuff and so I've been really lucky to incorporate that into my work mm. um, and I've learned heaps about um, like I worked with a really really fabulous graphic designer to do all the branding work for Social Spoons the cafe meals project that I um, led at um, in community help in South Melbourne and so Albie taught me so much about branding and how important it is to the mm uptake and recognition of the projects that we do as nutritionists and dietitians and then I'll be worked with me at Second Bite on two actually even three projects and 
so then Alby did our design work for Delicious as well and just learning about how important that is to like brand um, recognition and success mm-hmm. it's just it's vital well it's like your personality really yeah for the business and I think we've sort of it, on a lesser form I guess for the podcast that was an experience that we had mm. that I didn't think <laughs> I would ever have to undergo but like so one of our friends did um, the graphics it's for us beautiful. she's doing bizcom and she was so professional about it and yeah. was really happy to give us a good balance of yeah which we didn't expect so we I went was, to school with her yeah, and can you just do this little her. bit like this for us uh, but she pulls out a laptop at dinner and is like so here's a return brief amazing <laughs> um, that's great but it's so important to like I feel like people see that and they're like that's they, they see it on their screen like that's very much you guys like as in yeah. the two of us it sort of screams your personality yeah. a bit which is Really, really important to yeah, how you want to run a really good job. Well, yeah. with Katie's stuff, it's always linked in the show notes if anyone yeah. wants to see her or work with her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were good. so grateful to like, <laughs> yeah, have amazing. her input. Um, but then also the practicality of using that as well, we mm. found quite a steep learning curve because like I've done quite a bit of work in like social media and just always had an interest in that. But the actual implementation of those skills it's a it's a skill set that we're not equipped with Mm, so like I don't know if there's a need for more education around that in our courses because a lot of dietitians Mm. and nutritionists end up having to go down not having to but like end up needing those skills down the track or those business skills but I don't think there's really there's not space for it in the course yeah and I think it um, comes back to understanding what your personal interests and passions yeah. are and playing to those strengths. And if, if you're not interested in the visual comms stuff, you're probably never going to really take to it oh, and yeah. be really good at yeah. it. And then so it's about outsourcing that aspect of what you're trying to do. And mm-hmm. there's so many incredibly talented yeah. people in, <laughs> well, in all these spaces. So I think it's... Um, and it's quite valuable to think of the fact that while the diversity is huge for our work, we don't have to be good at everything because mm. that can feel, that's quite an overwhelming kind of heavy burden for um, new and recent kind of graduates as well to feel like you have to be good at all of it. Yeah. Um, so just knowing that you don't, I think. It helps. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You don't have to be able to do it all. Yeah. Um, while we're on the topic of advice for new grads, we were talking a little bit before we switched on the microphone about mentoring and the your experience with that. Do you mind telling us a little bit about, like, yeah, I guess your experience with mentoring and how you've yeah. seen people grow? Sure. So I was super fortunate that um, Claire Palermo was my mentor when I graduated oh, as a dietitian. And, <laughs> Because um, we were good friends, like um, she'd just moved in around the corner from where I was living in Mount Martha, so it seemed like a, yeah, just a perfect kind of fit, and Claire's just been my biggest supporter through my whole career, and I still really look up to her, and she always points me in the right direction, so I guess having had such a positive role model as my mentor, I try to emulate that as much as I can with my mentees, and Having learnt from Claire, um, hopefully how to do it well, I just I I think it's a real privilege to be asked to be a mentor for someone, and um, so yeah, I think um, 
really important for new graduates to find someone that they feel really comfortable with um, asking what they might think are silly questions, but someone that you can go and have a glass of wine with every month or a cup of tea or whatever it is that you kind of structure your mentoring meetings around. I've got um, a mentee up in Darwin, so we just catch up um, on the phone now. But I think, yeah, just having that rapport, um, I think I've got five mentees at the moment. That's so nice. I love it. Sorry, it's so probably five jobs. Then. It's yeah. not <laughs> too many, I think five, cause, and it's not that I, I love doing it, but it's just I want to make sure I can do the best job mm. for each of them. Yeah. Um, but just it's just about understanding, well, for me, what I try to do in my role as a mentor is understanding what they want to get out of the mentor year where they kind of see themselves in five years' time. And then it's just about connecting the dots. Like, I'm really lucky to have made a lot of um, connections in the field now. And so just connecting the dots and introducing people and hoping for the best. But it's so rewarding when people get that first job and just sharing that journey with them. It's um, probably the favourite thing um, about my job at Monash Uni is to see those career destinations and see what you all do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to when we've got more established careers and we can give back because that's kind of like where this has come from, that need to support the people around us mm. and give just ha- start these conversations because people don't know where to go for this information mm. and how to... I guess get that career path started. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It always feels like secret. Sometimes. Yeah. Sorry, but yeah. Secret like information like between like a mentee like... and a mentor. Which is, there's nothing wrong with oh, yeah. that. But I think it's just nice that if we are all discussing the same thing, sure. to have that out in the open and then go to specific people for certain advice, like whether yeah. that be a private practitioner or yourself in food industry teaching. Sorry, yeah. food security teaching. Yeah, but it's also I think having a mentor that you can pick up the phone and cry to when yeah. you're having mm. like you're having one of those really bad days. You've just been rejected from another job that you really wanted. Like, and it's our job as mentors to kind of give that pep talk when it's needed. Just listen when you need to. Just kind of knowing how to navigate because the mental health of that in that first year, I think it's really you're quite vulnerable trying to navigate your way through into the career that you've worked so hard to get into. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. It's always a bit of a letdown when you kind of finish and you're like, okay, what's next? Mm. But there's not really that support in place to help you get there. So, yeah, I really, really value, like, good mentorship. Mm. And I know Sim mentioned that, that just on that job trajectory, that obviously, yeah, we all have worked hard. And then she was like, okay, so in two months... I'll have a new, I'll have a full-time job and I'll be good to go. And it's just really hard to not have anyone to talk you through that process yeah. when it doesn't happen. Yeah. And sometimes it's supposed to work out for the best, but it's really hard to have that idea in your head and actually marry that with what's happening in reality. Yeah. Well, and it's sometimes good to have permission from, I mean, you shouldn't need permission, but to have someone give you permission to think outside the square and, go beyond like the kind of traditional nutrition dietetic mm. type jobs and they often always lead into something related to what you want to do eventually so yeah. yeah I think it's just yeah really thinking outside the box can be really helpful yeah and would you recommend yeah. taking you know a job interstate overseas taking a year off like you did was that something that really enhanced your 
perspective. <laughs> yeah, it worked for me, I think, just because I wanted to do that in my life anyway. And I feel so lucky with the way it's all played out and the people that I've met along the way. Like, I can't imagine my life having not gone to Carnarvon, not gone to Tonga, Alice even, like even the smaller jobs, the shorter times that I had away. Yeah, it's just, I, and I love, I've always loved adventure, so that's been really good. And I know that doesn't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's different, different <laughs> journey for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any advice for new grads around taking a job that's perhaps not their dream job? Yeah, I think um, I've had a few mentees in that boat and just kind of wanting to get um, some cash flow and that's a really valid reason to take a job. Um, And I think it's just then when you're in the job, staying pretty clear about what your goals are because you can get really lost if you don't if you can kind of lose Mm. sight of what you were hoping to do in your career Mm. so writing it down and having someone in that kind of doesn't have to be a formal mentor role but just having someone that can check in with you periodically and see how you're tracking towards them so um yeah I've got a mentee at the moment that her job it's not her dream job and it's not super busy so I'm just working with her and um, we're doing lots of like little journal clubs and things. So she's staying connected to the paediatric dietetic stuff that is her dream job. So she's still upskilling and, and doing a bunch of different training um, mm-hmm. courses and things. So it's still getting stuff on her um, CV that will hopefully pave the way towards what it is that she really, really wants to do. Yeah. And yeah, I know I had that conversation with someone really recently, a good friend of mine's gotten a dietetic job, but she wants to be doing clinical dietetics. Yeah. And she said it was really hard to have that conversation and say, this isn't where I want to be forever. Cause she's a couple of months into the role and was feeling a lot of pressure from upper management to, for her to commit for yeah, longer right. than she was willing yeah. to. And she was like, I feel so much better saying what, yeah, saying that it's not, I'm not going to be here forever. This is not yeah. what I want to do. Um, I will give it my best, but if something else comes up that's something I'm more passionate about, I'm going to take it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's good to be clear. But it's okay also, I think it's really good what you're doing with this podcast because podcast, hopefully it's showcasing that people's careers are often not just one job. Like we mm. switch and change so many times mm. um, and that's all part of it because what you think might be your dream job, you might get into it and realise actually this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so then you can change and it all works out in the end, in my experience. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And throwing a few babies in there. (laughs) I feel like that's worth talking about too. Like that's a whole nother kind of stage of life to navigate Mm. and taking maternity leave and coming back from maternity leave. And um, that's a really challenging time in people's career. If you don't um, mind me asking, how, how have you navigated that? Because, yeah, just how? <laughs> it's, really, it's really hard and because, like, you know, with your first baby, you've never done it before and um, it's really not talked about that openly. No. Um, people are fairly stoic about, you know, I've got this under control, I can do this, like, mum thing and I can go put on my fancy clothes and go to work and be the work <laughs> version of myself and... But in reality, it's quite messy and it's really hard and you just can't do it all like something ends up having to give. And yeah. So, yeah, it's hard. 
bad. Gosh. Yeah, we talked a bit to, I don't know if you remember Tess Andrinos. She Yes, I remember yeah. the name, yeah. So she took, she did the Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, we she did had a third bit of year and then she took, like, what was my fourth year okay, off. Okay, yeah. And then had to go back and finish in that year because the course was ending. Okay, so she I had a Tess, She yeah. had a baby, she had yeah. a baby halfway through and just, yeah, just talking about that and how she sort of had to prioritise at the time what was most important mm-hmm. to her inverted commas and trying to see where things lie in the, lay in the bigger picture yeah. of life and like obviously her career is important but having babies yeah. is important as well yeah. and trying to fit that and marry that all together. <laughs> it is really hard and I remember feeling a bit guilty because I worked out pretty early after I'd had Elliot that I functioned best when I've got my brain working, like I, mm. I have huge admiration for women that can stay at home with their children 24 seven, cause it's by far the hardest job I've ever had. Mm. Um, and so I was like, I went back to work when Elliot was 12 weeks old, but that was perfect for me. It was only two days away, but I really needed that. And it made me a better mom, um, in lots of ways. <laughs> so, and that was kind of cool to feel okay about that but I did yeah. feel a bit of judgment for going back to work so early and but you need to do what's best for you and speaking of okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah like I think there is a lot of pressure especially being in research now and seeing the progression of women who do have kids it's so interesting seeing how that balances out in case anyone was wondering because you can't see this everyone's here yeah <laughs> This is a microphone. You can say hello if you like. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot, Heidi, would you like to say hello into the microphone? You're a bit shy. You just wake up, didn't you? You've got so many Yoshis. Are you trading them? (laughs) 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 Elliot, we talked to you for three hours about his Yoshis. Yeah. Yeah. It's another podcast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Mummy's nearly finished, guys. No, Almost can done. Just give me ten minutes. Ten more minutes, Heidi. Come on. Is Pepper on? No, it's not working. No, I just went to the. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Two seconds away. We'll be like, yeah, five minutes, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess speaking about that, I guess kind of stigma around motherhood because. I mean, what, 90% of our workforce is female. Yeah. Mm. Most people are going to have that come across, like, at some point in their career. Mm. Was that something that you... I, I think because dietetics is so unique in that aspect. Yeah. Like, I don't think any other yeah. career would be like that. Is that something that you've experienced, like, acceptance around? Or was it still kind of this, that you're saying, judgment? About around? going back to yeah. work early? Yeah, I think, I feel like... I'm really open about talking about these things and as soon as you just say it, it's funny how much you hear back from people like, oh yeah, I just needed to come back to work as well and so I did and then other women saying that having babies changed my perspective on everything and work didn't seem as important to me anymore. And so just having the dialogue and understanding that everyone reacts really differently Mm -hmm. to it. Um, I remember Elliot was, yeah, he was about 12 weeks old and I was teaching. I had to, like, I was still lecturing um, at Monash and um, breastfeeding really frequently, as you can imagine. Yeah. And so my dad had Elliot in the pram walking around campus with him while I was teaching. 
And he did so well that one day he just had to bring him into class so I could feed Elliot in class. And I just had to time it around having a break in teaching. And I did a little breastfeed and then Elliot went back out with Dad in the pram around campus. And I had a lot of students come up to me afterwards and say, you know, it's really good to see that. It's Mm. good to see that you can still be really passionate about your work, really passionate about being a good mum and doing what you think is the best for your baby and trying to do, like, just juggle it all again but not being shy about it. Is that something you think we should plan for? Because in my experience, like you say, no one really talks about it and having kids is something that I would love to do eventually. Yeah. But I'm kind of like, we'll deal with it when it it happens and not really – think about the logistics or anything of it until then yeah I think I wouldn't give it too much thought because even if you think it through I guess none of us know how we'll respond if Mm. we do have kids and what that will mean for us and so it's just being open and it's all part of the journey like you just really don't know how you're going to react to it I think and just knowing (laughs) that you've got people around that will talk to you about it and really um that support network is so important both in your career life but also personal life as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and as we're so lucky as dietitians and nutritionists to have female role models that have navigated the, like, new yeah. baby time. Um, and I remember being really fearful that I was choosing family over career. And, you know, you have to choose one or the other, but it's just not the case at all. Um you still, and in some ways, it kind of adds something to your professional practice as well. Mm. I kind of cringe now when I think about some of the advice I probably gave new mums about feeding their yeah. babies before I'd had kids. Yeah. Um, you know, we do the best we can based on the evidence that's present, but with, um, yeah, having done all the introduction to solids and learning all about the different ways of doing that now, I, I feel like I'd do a much better job at that. Kind of role yeah do you yeah. think that can be taught I don't I'm sure it can I think if I'd asked the right questions it could have yeah and I think I did I think I asked all the right things but yeah you just kind of look back and go oh I think yeah. I did the right thing <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I just feel like because I can't even conceptualize just the impact that that would have on my life as it is like I feel like I'm busy enough without yeah, yeah. any you know additional people dependent on me <laughs> like but I think even as students, we're not really taught to consider that, like the actual impacts that it'll have on the person's like food intake and that yeah, just yeah. in that area of their life. So I think it's really good that you're so open about talking about these things because mm. it is a conversation that we need to have. Mm-hmm. Like it's especially it's normalized, yeah. yeah. Because I feel like, like you say, there is such a stigma in it. And again, it depends where you work. Like you're saying, mm. we're in a profession that's very, you know kid friendly in a manner of speaking and that there's so many females but it's still a huge that's we're very niche community Mm. a part of this huge employment picture and it's not the same for everyone and I feel like we shouldn't be scared of those conversations yeah I think it's as well um like I've got friends who are in the nutrition dietetics world that have had to advocate really hard um with their employer they didn't want to come back to work four days a week or full time and so that personal advocacy becomes Mm -hmm. a really important skill for us to say Mm -hmm. I'm valuable I know that I'm valuable to my employer and I'm willing to work two or three or four however many days you want to work but really advocating for yourself 
um, can be really hard, especially earlier in your career. I think mm. you get better at that as you get more experience under your belt, but just knowing your value and standing true to that is really important. Yeah. 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 Well, that was a nice little addition <laughs> to everything, because yeah, it's not something that we've been able to... Yeah, we don't have that experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so. Really like... <laughs> I guess the, the only other thing to mention on that is it's the same as the cultural competency stuff as a new grad navigating that. It's about just asking questions. Yeah. So no one's expecting you to know what it's like to have dependent mm. children if you haven't had that. So it's just asking the questions and showing that you don't know what that's like. And people are always so happy to share, you know, well, yeah. usually. Yeah. So just give them the opportunity to, to talk about it and then you'll learn heaps. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a good note for us to yes. wrap up on. Um, we do have one final question that we ask to all of our guests sure. on the Patrick Party. Um, so we'll finish up on that, which is, what does food mean to you? Food means everything to me. <laughs> is that what everyone says? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel, oh, it's a really hard question. What does food means to Maybe me? Issues. So <laughs> I think in a word I'd say connection. So food um, beyond everything. But food um, allows us to connect with the amazing planet that we live on that's producing food for us and feeling really connected to the source of that food. But then connecting with loved ones, friends, family through food. Like what an amazing medium that we get to work with as yeah. nutritionists and dietitians mm-hmm. um, just to connect with it in that way. And I think finally it's connecting with your own personal identity and understanding more about yourself and your culture and um, everything that makes you who you are. I think food is a really important part of that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So nice. to end on. <laughs> well, thank you. Did you want to add anything actually? No, we... I think that's good. I think you guys have asked lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank I you for everything. Yeah. yeah, hopefully. I think we have. I think right. we if you have any more, you can just. Yeah. Email and all. Yeah, we'll do a little yeah. Q&A. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, for our viewer or listeners, if they want to get in touch at all, is there somewhere they can find you? Yeah. Or? So if people are um, keen to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so you're very welcome to connect that way. Um, and I'm also on Twitter. So I think it's um, at Liza underscore R underscore Barber. Spelt like harbour, but within a B. We'll um, and so Twitter's good. And if you um, want to sort of do private message through Twitter, I usually get onto that. Um, and then if people are interested in the pickle journey, uh, we're semi-active on Instagram. So you'll find delicious pickles on Instagram and can contact me that way as well. Cool. Lovely. Yeah, we'll link everything down below. Oh, cool. yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you for having us. No, gosh, of course. (laughs)
Thanks for sticking around, though. And thank you so much for coming to our pantry party. Yeah, I hope you had a great time. I mean, we sure did. Oh, no, don't worry about doing the dishes. Leave them there. Yeah, we'll clean it up tomorrow. Just get home safe. Yeah. Oh, okay. If you really want to, you can hit the link down below that takes you to our Patreon page. Or, you know, just check out our website, our Instagram, share this episode, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Maybe we'll be new and noteworthy one day. That'd be a great review for a party. Yeah. But either way, go home. The episode's over. Bye.